Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Linda M. Grasso, professor of English at York College, City University of New York. Her book, Equality Under the Sky, Georgia O'Keeffe and 20th Century Feminism, published by the University of New Mexico Press, is the topic of this show. Grasso provides an in-depth look at O'Keeffe's ambivalent relationship with feminism from her early beginnings as a new woman in the 1910s to the support she received for women to become a national icon for feminism. Along the way, she distanced herself from women and feminism, seeking to establish herself as an artist rather than as a woman artist. Art making served as a form of personal activism. Her desire to control her career and image motivated her to seek gender transcendence and embrace a personal feminism of individualism, self-expression, and professional achievement. O'Keeffe's success, the modernism of her time, and feminism are deeply linked and demonstrates the complexity of women who excelled in their chosen fields and the enduring conflicts within the movement. How the meaning of feminism changed during the course of O'Keeffe's lifetime and how she became a feminist icon disconnected from its politics are at the heart of this fascinating study. Here is my conversation with Linda Grasso. Now let me introduce you to the author, Linda M. Grasso. Linda, hello. Hello. Welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with your our audience about this book. I'm very interested in O'Keeffe because I live in New Mexico. And I've been, you know, following her for a while in terms of learning about her. And so this book was just so fascinating. And I I love it. There's so many connections with the broader feminist movement, not just O'Keefe. So before we get into your book, tell us about yourself and how you came to write Equality Under the Sky. Uh, Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, What can I tell you about myself? Uh, I've been studying women's literature and women's history uh, since I've been a teenager. Uh, So I came to this book because I actually came to O'Keeffe in, uh, while I was an undergraduate, I was taking a class in American autobiography with Lillian Schlitzel. And Laurie Lyle's 1980 biography of O'Keefe had just come out. And I was just fascinated with any book or any performance or anything that had to do with women. So um, I designed a project where I compared uh, Laurie's biography of O'Keefe to O'Keefe's book, which I also had uh, that had come out in paperback. Um, And I looked at the two in relation to each other to see what was in the biography that wasn't in the um, in O'Keeffe's book. And so I did this project as an undergraduate. And then many, many years later, after I had studied uh, women's history under Mary Jo Buell at um, Brown University, Um, I had finished my, uh, well, I wrote my dissertation and and then revised that into my first book on 19th century women and anger, 19th century women writers and anger. And I was relaxing and I started to read again about O'Keeffe and just became absolutely fascinated with the story and with her. And at first, I really didn't know what I was going to do with her, but I knew the pull, the magnetic pull was so strong that I needed to do something. And it came to me after a while that what I really wanted to do was focus on feminism because I was so interested in um, the history of feminism. And I felt that O'Keeffe's stories Uh, were a way into understanding feminism through the lens of a specific individual. Now, when you talk about O'Keeffe, you and I, 
I know who O'Keefe is. Lots of people know who O'Keefe is, but people may not know much about her background. So can you tell us a little bit about how she grew up and her art training, her very early years? Um, O'Keefe was born in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin in 1887. She um, received uh, art education really like many, many other women of her race and class, middle-class women, white women at the time, uh, first in the home uh, because art was valued as a kind of female um, endeavor. Uh, It was equated with the idea of domestic beauty and women were equated with beauty. So it was sanctioned that women could uh, and girls could have some training in um, in art, like painting teacups and this sort of thing. So she had that. Um, and then she uh, went on to have formal training at uh, the Art Institute of Chicago much later on and then at the Art Students League, um, where she really then uh, became a professional artist, was ambitious to become a professional artist. So in many ways, her early years are very much like other women of her time and place in terms of art education. But uh, what distinguishes her is that she was very ambitious and then she actually devoted her her whole life to art making. Now, isn't it true, is it true that, well, when she went to the Art Institute at that time, uh, women, the, the idea was not that a woman would become a professional artist on the level of, of the male professional artists at the time, but that she would go and teach art. Yes, or become an illustrator. Uh, those were the two uh, jobs that women trained in art usually went into. And yes. Okay, so there was a so there she was allowed to study art, but there was already in in in, in the social norm of cap about how far she would go with that. Yes. Okay. So next thing I want to ask you is how, how did she, how did she be how did she encounter the suffrage movement, feminism? How did she? Uh, you, you talk about her becoming a new woman. Uh, can you talk about what that meant? To her or what it meant to be a new woman and uh, how she was involved with the early feminist movement? Well, O'Keefe came of age. She was in her 20s at a very, very um, exciting moment in feminist history uh, because at the turn into the 20th century, the 19th century pioneers like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were um, at the end of their lives. And a new generation of women was coming into being and revitalized the suffrage movement. The idea of um, women's rights had really started in the 19th century and had been carried through, uh, but there wasn't uh, a large scale movement uh, like the suffrage movement until the turn into the 20th century after the Civil War. So O'Keefe was in the thick of all of this activism, multi-generational activism, and she was living the life of what was called a new woman because uh, she was financially independent, she was educated, and she was mobile, moving from place to place. She moved around a lot. Um, And she encountered feminism specifically through a a close friend of hers that she met at uh, the art at Columbia University, actually, when she was training to become a teacher. And that was Anita Pollitzer, who I focus a lot on in the book. And Anita uh, was from uh, the South and was living in New York. Both she and her sister were uh, educated in, at Columbia, actually, and became teachers. Um, but uh, Anita became very involved in the suffrage movement, and O'Keefe and um, Anita were very close friends. There's a really fascinating correspondence uh, that's published now between 1915 and 1917. 
Um, and you could see uh, Pulitzer becoming more and more involved. So it was through Pulitzer that O'Keefe was connected to institutionalized feminism really over um, many, many decades. Now, uh, you also tie her not only to the feminist movement, but you also tie her to uh, this modernist uh, culture, modernist movement. Can you can you ex- uh, explicate or explain to people what was the modernist movement and how does this uh, connect to feminism and to O'Keefe? Well, I think uh, so many people have written so beautifully about modernism, but I, I think the easiest way to understand it was this quest. Um, it was a response to modernity. So it was this quest to really forge new ways of seeing, new ways of understanding the world in um, this kind of um, turn, turn at the turn into the 20th century with all these massive changes that were happening in industrialization and um, changes, well, particularly for women in the uh, access for white women, particularly uh, to, to higher education. Um, so modernism was this idea of breaking with the past and making it new. And in many ways, feminism and modernism were aligned, I mean, certainly in that pursuit, because feminists wanted to reject conventionality and find new ways of being um, in, in the world. And the, the highlight of modernism, I think, was this premium on daring, on courage, on making it new. And what I believe is that feminism through its philosophy um, and its ideas about women's emancipation enabled women like O'Keefe to be courageous, to pursue uh, ambition, because really modernism was male-defined, and that's how O'Keefe encountered it, really, was through uh, male modernist painters. Uh, through Stieglitz, through Stieglitz's galleries and and, uh, the Montrose Gallery, other modern art, there weren't very many, but um, modern art galleries um, in in New York that she visited. And she was also reading modernist periodicals like camera work. uh, And she was also reading the masses, which I believe combined both modernism and feminism um, in very interesting ways. So she was just schooled in, um, she was shaped, I believe, by the convergence of these movements at a very pivotal time in her coming to define herself um, as an artist. Now, she engaged in a lot of uh, what I would say is self-fashioning, really sort of creating a persona for herself as a modern sort of modernist iconoclast. Um, what did that entail? She she had a particular way of presenting herself and who she was. Well, uh, I would say most fundamentally, I mean, what I looked at and was really fascinated by was the way she fashioned herself uh, through clothing, and. Um, it, it's so interesting to study, and I, I just kind of um, touched, touched on this, and I would like to do more with it, uh, the ways in which women saw self-fashioning as part of this uh, emancipatory movement, um, you know, the clothes that they wear, wore. So it's really interesting to look at pictures of her uh, earlier in um, the 1900s, how how her clothing changes over time. So you you see her, she's like many other women are no longer wearing corsets, um, no longer wearing constricting clothing. So the um, she was part of, this is one of the things I tried to emphasize in the book. She was an iconoclast, certainly, but she was part of a larger movement of women who were also iconoclasts. She didn't do this all on her own. Um, 
she, uh, I'm sh- she, for example, was very excited uh, about the uh, a series that was in Charlotte Perkins Gilman's, who was a major feminist theorist at the time, and who had a journal called The Forerunner. Uh, and Gilman had written a whole series of articles on women's dress. Um, and O'Keefe just loved it. And uh, Gilman was talking about basically the ways in which dress create gender distinctions, which lead to discrimination against women. So there were a lot of ideas at the time that she she drew from in terms of fashioning herself. But it seemed like the whole time that she's doing this, of course, she kind of wants to has a sense that this is me, this is my personal individual image that I'm creating without being aware that she's part of something bigger? Uh, I think that she very much put a premium on individualism, definitely on being an individual. She was aware, though, whether she acknowledged it or not is another story. But she was certainly aware because she was reading uh, all of these materials, all of these books. And she had a very, this is another thing that would be fascinating to pursue. She had a very interesting friendship with a woman when she was in Texas, uh, right before she moves to New York, uh, who also, there's some allusions in the letters, who was also self-fashioning like O'Keefe, wearing men's hats, uh, very loose clothing, this sort of thing. Uh, so she was with other women, and she was influenced, I believe, uh, by everything, all these things that were going on around her. Okay, let's talk about her ambition to be uh, known as an artist. And she 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 wanted to emulate a particular image of what an artist was. Can you talk about the implicate the, the masculinity that's implicated in the image of the artist at that time? Well, what really struck me when I was reading through so much of the material was uh, the correspondence between um, Pollitzer and O'Keefe, where Pollitzer is describing um, you know, her desire to, uh, to get the best artistic training. And she's talking about, she's saying, oh, I, I can't decide which of the big academic men I would like to study with. And uh, so everything is, there, there's no mention of women at all. And then um, later on, Pollitzer also talks about some talks that she goes to and, you know, one of the men says, you know, in order to be a really good artist, you have to be a man. You know, so masculinity was associated with um, with with being daring. And so I think she embraced, you know, how could you not um, uh, take all these ideas inside? But at the same time there were these feminist ideas circulating. And that's why I think that feminism as a movement, as a philosophy, and as a life practice is so very important to um, women artists of her generation because it gave them an alternative ground, an alternative way of thinking about these things. It was, so how was... At, but there's this tension in your book throughout between the what feminism offered O'Keefe uh, in terms of reimagining her, the possibilities for what her life could be and what she could accomplish as an artist with her, in a way, it was sort of feeling like maybe it was standing in her, being a woman was in her way, and so she wanted to distance herself from feminism in a public way. Can you talk about that tension between it was, it offered her uh, sort of a nurturing, a nurturance of her, you know, daringness, but at the same time, it felt like, no, I don't want to want to go that way. Can you Uh explain? 
<laughs> I, I wish I could explain it. I mean, one of the things that was, you know, that, that is the big question, um, and it really comes to the fore in the 1970s, is why does she publicly disavow feminism? And she does. Uh, but in, in the 1970s, she's already in her 80s. So that's during the resurgence of feminism, the women's art movement. Um, she rebuffs uh, women artists uh, who believe that or want to celebrate um, the idea of being a woman and believe that that's inspirational. Um, so she was, I think she definitely rejected that kind of feminism because she had spent her whole career trying to present herself as gender transcendent as saying i my feminism is that i have i have been able to become an individual who has overcome the barriers of gender so i do not want to be identified as a woman artist and then to be identified as a woman artist of course was to be uh, deemed inferior unprofessional so she definitely uh, hated being called a woman artist her whole career, and we see it really coming to the fore in the 1970s. Earlier, though, while she rebuffed and 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 distanced herself from, uh, I would say, from women, other women artists, other women's groups, but not women artist groups. But what's fascinating is that at the same time, she's affiliated with uh, the National Women's Party, the feminist organization, primarily through Anita Pollitzer, but, but she's involved in it. Um, and it's almost like she's bifurcated, in, you know, that she does all these things uh, so that she recognizes the importance of fighting gender discrimination and trying to seek gender justice. However, it's always a, a, a fine line that she's walking in terms of identifying as a feminist or identifying as a woman. And those kinds of tensions are what I tried to tease out um, in, in a variety of ways in the book. And it, it was absolutely fascinating to me to try to figure it out. No, it seems like she, um, what she rejected was what we would call now a feminism of difference. Right, exactly. That women have some sort of uh, special difference that's not men, and we're going to embrace that difference and value it. Uh, she wanted to, she was more of a liberal feminist of, a, of same, that men and women are the same and have the same aspirations and, and talents and goals, and uh, there's no difference. So that's the, the first thing. I, and the other thing, too, that I noticed is that her story this in the mid-decades mid of the 20th century, there were other women uh, who in other fields, you know, and in, in writing and other things that people did, um, who were also very successful, who actually had the same sort of attitude towards feminism. Right. That's, that's, what, that's what I'm hoping that my book, helps people understand. So getting back to this business about difference versus sameness, that's, that is a, um, a contradiction within feminism that I tried also to really tease out uh, going throughout the book. Uh, back to Charlotte Perkins Gilman, whom I mentioned earlier, who published the forerunner and was very um, significant, some would argue the most significant theorist um, in this period, Gilman believed that women were more alike uh, than different. So not totally discounting that men and women are, are different, but, but that the, the, the sameness was more important than the differences. So yes, O'Keefe embraced, definitely embraced that kind of feminism, but at the same time, you know, as I tried to show in the book, she also uh, believed in the idea that women were different. And we see this, you know, I tried to find the evidence to 
um, to uh, to show this, particularly um, in in um, 19, the 1920s, for example, she writes to Mabel Dodge Luhan and she says, you know, I wish you would write something about me because as a woman, you understand, you would understand me in a way that the men don't. The men just, you know, don't have a clue. They don't get it. Um, and, and at other times as well, she says, uh, she sees herself as a woman. So again, you know, and this is a this is a contradiction that is within feminism, too. That at the same time that women, some women believed uh, that there weren't, uh, there wasn't much difference between men and women. Uh, they also believed that that women were different. For example, Mary Beard, whom I talk about, who's also another very important. Uh, activist and feminist and women's historian and writer, uh, she really believed that there was uh, women had uh, were more nurturing. They were more uh, they were pacifist. Uh, so th- this tension is is fascinating. So it's it's not an easy. It's not just you know well one group believes in difference and the other believes in in. Um, uh, women's uh, same women and men's sameness. You know, it's 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 complicated. Yeah, well, what you're basically saying is that you can find both ideas within one person. Yes, and that's what makes it so you know crazy making. Yes, uh, <laughs> because you don't you know you and, and I think I think women today also uh, experience that within themselves individually, right? We're we're the same, but we're not. Uh, and, and, and we go from, you know, we kind of go from one to the other, depending on the situation. Uh, so at times we might be very supportive of other women as women. And at other times we may decide that we want to distance ourselves from women and say, well, we're not, I'm not like those women. Right. You know, yes. <laughs> yeah. complicated. Yes. Now, let me, you brought up men and let's talk about the men in her life because there were some important men. We all, a lot of people know about Alfred Stiglitz and his role in in helping her, uh, bringing her art to the attention of the public. Uh, And that that was a very complicated relationship. And then Arthur McMahon, and talk about how these relationships with men shaped her career. Uh, well, I, and were these were these men feminists? Who were these men? Well, that's one of the thing that I uh, one of the things I tried to do as well is everything and everyone I talked about. I tried to understand their feminism. So Arthur MacMahon is a very important character in this in this whole story because O'Keefe um, falls madly in love with him, and she meets him when she uh, she begins taking uh, summer school classes at the University of Virginia art classes. Um, And then she ends up teaching there. Uh, And in 1912, women were allowed into, white women were allowed into the University of Virginia, but they could only take summer classes. (laughs) Um, So she meets Arthur McMahon at the University of Virginia during the summer, and he is a graduate student at Columbia who's working with Charles Beard, who's a very important historian at the time and pacifist. And what's fascinating is that, so so all of these connections, right? And Arthur McMahon is connected to uh, village modernism and bohemianism, because he is roommates with Randolph Bourne, who is in the thick of things in the village. So one of the things I see happening through Arthur McMahon is that O'Keefe gains entree into um, reform, ideas about reform and education. He, Arthur was very interested in feminism and uh, was the one who, the person who recommended that O'Keefe read some feminist books. 
such as Floyd Dell's Women as World Builders, which of course she was madly in love. So she read, tried to read everything he, um, he suggested. But he was, you know, he was an academic. He was inside this, um, in, uh, inside Columbia and their, uh, their way of addressing change was through education and institutional reform. But Mahonen also connected her to village radicalism. And then, uh, well, uh, do you want me to go on? <laughs> yeah, I, go I think on? it's really, okay. this is, a, I thought okay. this was really interesting. Okay. Go ahead. And so then Stieglitz uh, comes into the mix, right? Because Stieglitz is both Anita and um, O'Keefe see Stieglitz as the, the kind of, you know, arbiter of modernism. He's very famous. And at one point, O'Keefe says to Anita, you know, if there's anybody that um, that I would like to uh, to see what I'm doing and like it, it would be Alfred Stieglitz. And so then Anita takes some of O'Keefe's drawings to Stieglitz without um, O'Keefe's knowledge and shows them to him. And I was able to confirm that this is a tr- this is really true because um, O'Keefe talks about not knowing that Anita was going to do this when she reports this to Mac Mahone. Um, and that's how she gets involved with Stieglitz because Stieglitz then sees in O'Keefe uh, the, the, the woman modernist that he had been searching for as Kathleen Pine uh, so convincingly argues in her book um, and they begin a very passionate um, epistolary uh, romance in uh, at the in 1915. Actually, the same time that O'Keefe is still involved with Mac Mahone. Now Stieglitz was what what Gilman, uh, Charlotte per- Perkins Gilman, the language used at the time was a I would say a feminine feminist. Because he really he believed in um, the equality of women that women should be artists um, and that you know when women created art and culture that was a way to uh, you know revolutionize the world to change um, to change conventions uh, and however he believed that women were fundamentally different from men. So he, he was theorizing that, you know, women create art out of the womb and this sort of thing. So at the, at, while he advanced her career as a woman, he also is destructive to her career in ways that we still um, are experiencing today in sexualizing her and making her uh, exceptional. So that's how I understood these two men's relationship to feminism and why it was so important. And all of them, by the, by the way, that I sort of realized were in what I call an exchange circuit um, at one particular time. And they're all exchanging books and writing letters and ideas. So this is uh, Mac Mahone, Stieglitz, Pulitzer, uh, so even though O'Keefe is not necessarily in New York, um, she is still very much in the center, I would say, of these um, developments and uh, of modernism and feminism in 1915, 1916, 1917, before she, she comes to New York permanently in 1918. So what is uh, Stiglitz using her sexuality or selling, I guess, uh, yeah, her sexuality is part of the package of her art making. Can you, how does she respond to that? Does she not uh, see that as problematic since she wanted to be seen as an artist, not a woman artist, or especially not a a sexual woman artist? Yeah, these are great. These are great questions. Uh, now, there was a, a, a 
TV movie made uh, several years ago uh, with Jeremy Irons, and I forget who else starred in it, where they, uh, whoever wrote the script, had O'Keefe, you know, really angry at, at Stieglitz uh, for, for uh, taking nude photographs and exhibiting them um, in uh, 1921. We don't know really <clears throat> the answer to you is the answer to your question. There is no um, evidence from her directly of how she felt. The way that uh, we can kind of get a sense of how she felt, well, there are a couple of intriguing things. One is that one uh, art historian examined the paintings the, the, themselves, and she found in the very early period that O'Keefe had actually uh, painted um, on top of, I can't remember if it was another painting or a photograph or something, where she had painted her own breasts. Um, so the suggestion was that she, that she was inspired by what Stieglitz was doing to a certain extent in terms of his representations of her, uh, the nudes. On the other hand, uh, we know that from uh, uh, letters in the 20s to other people, that she was very angry about the ways in which the men, as she referred to them later on in the Stieglitz circle, were talking about her art. Um, but we, it's fascinating. We don't really have any evidence that she expressed that anger to Stieglitz directly. But, you know, it's, it's very interesting to think about, you know, was she deflecting by saying she was angry at the other men? We don't know. There's one letter much later on in the 30s uh, where she finally says to see, not about this, but he was engaged in a very public affair with this um, person, Dorothy Norman, where she says to Stieglitz, you know, um, uh, it's not okay with me for you to make love publicly to another person. You know, I can understand if, uh, you, you know, that we can't control our feelings, but we can certainly um, control how we express them in public. So there we see that she was humiliated, but yeah. So it seems to me like uh, the the thing is it's Stiglitz, uh, uh, her personal intimate relationship with him probably colored how she responded to him otherwise. In other words, if they had not had an intimate relationship, maybe she would have uh, been a little bit more uh, forthcoming with her expressions of how he was viewing her art. Yeah, I think that's probably quite true. Yeah. So let us talk about, uh, one thing you talk about is art. We think, you know, we think of art as being, you know, art can be very political. It can carry political messages. But when you, when you look at her art, you don't see that. You don't see like, you know, a big political statement or even a subtle political statement. So, but you also talk about art making, the process of making art, and art making of a woman making art as a form of activism. Can you unpack that? Well, I, you know, I, I tried very hard to figure out what was O'Keefe's feminism, and um, I tried to document her uh, activism as much as I possibly could in the research that I did. But what I realized, even though she had done specific things primarily through the National Women's Party, had advanced feminism by lending her famous name uh, to uh, specific causes, what I finally came to conclude was that it was through her art making that um, that she really displays her feminism. And we can think about her uh, art being a, a feminist um, intervention, a feminist statement. And that's because I think given when she became a professional artist and 
all that she did throughout the course of her career, in fact, having such a long career in itself is remarkable, that everything that she did in terms of the artistic experimentation, uh, the colors that she chose, the mediums in which she painted, given that um, there were so many restrictions and gendered ideas about art itself, uh, what you know, certain colors were equated with women. So uh, she and she addresses this in in the book that she writes um, later on that the the drab colors were what the men liked. So she imitated them so she could show them that you know she could do it. Um, she the, the the men as she calls them again uh, were really angry at her when she started to paint New York because women weren't supposed to be painting New York so all these things that she did taking on sexuality I believe uh, through painting the anatomy of flowers was um, very daring and I believe she did that because she wanted to be able to experiment. Um, and to engage sexuality the way her male peers were engaging sexuality, the way male artists had been engaging sexuality for for centuries. Uh, So when we take all of this into consideration, um, the the many, many things that she did, the longevity of her career, the way she resisted um, all of these gendered restrictions, and applied the idea of equality to art making itself, I believe that that is a kind of feminism. And I believe that because O'Keefe and feminism are so entwined historically and into our own day, it's absolutely fascinating to every time there's an exhibition. You know, I read all the uh, discourse about the exhibitions, the reviews, how inevitably there are connections between O'Keefe and feminism, how, how she and feminism are entwined so that she is read, she and her art are read as feminist texts. And I believe that that, that then inspires uh, the 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 existence of feminism and and for others to remake feminism it keeps feminism the fundamental ideas about feminism in public view in the public discourse and so that's yeah you're just you're just talking about something that has to do with her you talked about uh, her as a feminist icon and it's interesting that she became a feminist icon when she work so diligently to not get entangled with feminism as a political movement uh, early on, later on in her life. So can you talk about the, the role of her fans, her women fans, and the, the, uh, the role they had in, 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 you know, forwarding her as this feminist icon? Well, I loved uh, working on the fan mail. That it was absolutely fascinating to me. There are ten cartons <laughs> of fan mail, and it's really interesting that she kept it all. And not only did she keep it all, but she made sure that it, that they were all preserved, which wasn't the case with um, uh, Maria Chabot's letters. Um, so. People wrote, women wrote to her, men wrote to her too. And a lot of people asked me about the the men's letters, but I really focused on the women's letters. As early as the um, 1930s, uh, women were writing to her, uh, you know, can you send us information about yourself? Women saw her as uh, a success. They saw her as representative of a woman who had achieved wonderful professional success by overcoming gendered impediments. So they saw her as a model. They saw her as inspiration. They admired her tremendously. And what struck me about these letters in particular was how 
personal they were and revelatory. They, the, some of these women shared very, very personal aspects of their lives. So they really regarded her as uh, this kind of confidant. You know, they, they imagined her as all of these things. But the fact that she was a woman like herself was uh, tremendously, you know, inspiring and important to her. But it was not only the fan, the the women who wrote to her, I believe, that advanced her career. I also believe that other women, um, her her female teachers, uh, women journalists who wrote about her, um, women who worked for her, who were highly trained, uh, like Doris Bree. Um, who were her agents, um, who, who um, you know, did, did her exhibitions, helped her with her exhibition catalogs. All of these women uh, enabled her to succeed at different, uh, different times in her career and were fundamental. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to put women back into the picture because most of what is known about O'Keefe is her uh, d- uh, denial of feminism in the 70s. And the younger generation doesn't even know about that. Which So I see that whole history getting wiped out, uh, which is fascinating, too. Um, but they, they, some people, old, you know, people in their 50s and 60s, they know about Juan Hamilton, who is the young man uh, who came into her life very late, um, uh, you know, who, who basically was her companion and took care of her and guarded her. Um, so they don't know about all of these women who came previously. Okay. So let me ask you about, um, her book, uh, the self-portrait book, Mm -hmm. uh, that she, that she compiled, later in her life what is uh talk about problematic uh what the issues in that that book is are um that book is is really really interesting she she claims that she wrote the book uh because other other people had said things about her and she wanted to tell the story herself so i think she put that book together um well Juan Hamilton also encouraged her, I think, um, at the end of her life. I think she did that book because she was very invested in scripting her own legacy at the end of her life. She wanted the story told uh, the way she wanted to tell it, and she wanted it known uh, what her version of the story was. She also was very much interested in scripting a legacy of modernism and um, ennobling uh, Stieglitz. And of course, she was a fundamental part of that. Um, So she put the book together really by cobbling uh, together exhibition statements that she had written, um, uh, things that that she had had before. She put all these things together. the, the tension that I see, in, and the book is fascinating because it's both words and pictures. So the words are interspersed with the pictures. So I had to figure out, you know, why she did that. Uh, why, if she wants to claim that she speaks through uh, the language of color and shape and lines, why she then also uses words, uh, which was interesting. Um and when I analyzed the book, what I came to realize is that there's a, a tension within the book that the overt story is one of her being um, a successful artist, as I've described before, overcoming gendered impediments and uh, really transcending gender, uh, being a great American artist. Uh, the book, uh, you know, ends with with her. Um, well, it doesn't end exactly, but there's a big part, a uh, big story she tells uh, of getting one of her largest paintings into the Art Institute of Chicago. So this inclusion in um, 
in a very important, prestigious museum where she had trained, you know, is very significant. So on the one hand, there's that story of achievement and success and gender transcendence. But on the other hand, as I alluded to uh, a little bit before, she tells all of these stories of the, the gender impediments um, that she had to deal with in uh, becoming uh, an artist. And what, what I see is that she is that, that story uh, conflicts with the other story. And that story is never really resolved. How she, there are all these contradictions in the way she presents herself, even within the book itself. Um, her relationships to other women, her women teachers. Uh, so that tension, I think, is is in there. And, and it's the fundamental tension between um, being a woman artist and being an artist. Right. I have a, I have a question about uh, this, uh, this story, the O'Keefe's story, which I think seems to be a, a story that gets repeated across different fields where women have achieved a lot and they've achieved a lot generally uh, based on male definitions and male spaces, uh, uh, you know, uh, art galleries or, or publishing or whatever, where the men dominate the domain and a woman goes in and excels and does, you know, really great, but it's on the terms that have been there given to her by a history of male domination of those domains. And I'm kind of wondering, does that seem, it's like, it's almost like any woman who is successful in a male defined domain, we want to say that she's a feminist. Is, can we do that? And does feminism require the ownership of the idea of feminism, you know, and engagement or uh, solidarity with other women in an attempt to, tr- to change the domain instead of just playing by the rules that have been inherited? Wow, that's a, that's a huge question. <laughs> no, I know it is, but, it, but it, 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 that's what it seems like happened with her. She was, she was working in a domain. The rules had been already set before she got there. Right. And uh, how, and I think she did try to bend some of those rules uh, or change them a little bit, you know, what is considered great art. I'm just, I'm just, it's a question about, you know, what is feminism and who is a feminist and right. what does feminism require? Does it, you know, I mean, you could say Margaret Thatcher is a feminist, okay? Right. <laughs> she was very successful in a domain, a political domain that was set up by men. Right. Based on their rules. So that's what um, success doesn't necessarily mean feminist, I guess is what I mean. Right. Well, I think in answer to your question, I, I do think that feminism requires um, a gendered consciousness. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. And, uh, and a belief that, uh, gender prescriptions are created by people and not by deities and that uh, there has to be um, work done uh, by women who identify as women, maybe in concert with others, with men, uh, to change those gendered um, injustices, gendered impediments. So what you say about her is uh, it's you know you're absolutely right that she inherited this um, male-defined um, art art world and art profession, and she did see uh, her inclusion, I believe, as uh, a feminist triumph. Uh, but at the same time, I think that she also uh, had a sensitivity to women's issues and did push the idea of um, women's, uh, what, what can I say, uh, 
women's worlds, right, uh, by making art out of uh, women's um, emblems, like the, the flowers, what she did with the flowers. She takes the flowers, uh, which is totally associated with women. Men didn't want to paint flowers necessarily because they were too associated with the, with, with the female domain. And she applies modernist techniques and kind of blows the whole thing open. Um, and she also, at the, at the end, well, after Stieglitz's death, she ennobles domesticity uh, by she owns not one but two houses. There are all these photographs of her that circulate uh, in, in her houses uh, being very much loving, um, taking care of her houses. Um, so what does feminism require? I mean, I love that question. It's a, it's, it's a great question. I do think that feminism, fundamentally, that feminism requires a gendered consciousness and um, the, the desire uh, to rectify gendered injustice through through deliberate actions. Yeah, it's interesting because she had brought up uh, Mary Baird and, you know, I've been working on her a little bit and she she rejected feminism as it became defined after the, the franchise. And she just didn't, she didn't say, she did not believe, she said it, I don't believe that women have been oppressed forever. Well, Mary Baird, I, you know, when I, in, in working on this book, I just came upon all of these women and I just wanted to research everybody. Right. So I did, um, that's why it took me so long to write it. I did a little bit of research on Mary Beard and she's, she is really, really fascinating. Now, I don't think that she abandoned feminism. I think she became very disillusioned uh, by this, by the politics of equality, especially during the Depression in the 30s, you know where I talk yes, about it's true. yeah, yes. where I talk about that. Because art. you guess, you guess, what does it mean to be equal and everybody's poor? Right, right, and also, <laughs> yeah, equality. She says, you know, now we have equality and disaster. Um, but you know, she. What was fascinating to me is when she, you know, spearhead. She she runs that. Um, World Women's Archive Project in the 30s, and the appeal letters use the language of feminism, use the language of equality. So I haven't studied Beard, you know, enough to talk about her relationship to feminism over the course of her career. But I would say that she does not abandon um, feminist ethics, oh, feminist she, dreams. She doesn't abandon women, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. but no, I no, think, that's true. Yeah. I think she still believes in feminism. I mean, part of the problem is that we've got this general, you know, term that that keeps changing and, right. and people... Right, the meaning of it changes, yeah. Right, and it's like democracy, you know, people attribute all these meanings to it. So is it useful to have this broad term or should should we have different terms? I mean, it raises yeah, yeah. this, yeah, it raises this this whole question. Um, I, and I guess we I, have to talk about uh, we have to talk about feminisms. Uh, there's multiple feminisms. So let me ask you one more question, one final question. Uh, what would you like your the listeners of this podcast or the readers of your book to take away? Uh, well, I hope uh, that everyone listening will um, understand and appreciate that feminism has a long, complicated history um, as a social justice movement, as a cluster of ideas, and as lived practices. I also hope that they better understand how O'Keefe benefited from and contributed uh, to the history of feminism. And finally, I hope that somebody or lots of people listening will be moved to research more of the history of feminism, especially uh, in regard to how it affects and informs women's uh, aesthetic and 
political creativity. So it would be great to look at um, different artists and their relationship to feminism in different periods. Well, Linda, thank you. You've been very generous with your, your time. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, you, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Study. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 